0: Well, hello and welcome to The Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, And I'm your
1: fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova.
0: The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And you listeners out there who are generous enough to give us money every month, to help us keep this podcast going, to show us how much you appreciate the show and what we're doing. So if you want to become a contributor, a patron, go to patreon.com slash not and throw us some cash so we can uh, continue doing what we're doing. So, Rusana, this week on January 21st was the 100th anniversary of Vladimir Lenin's death. And this episode, of course, is an episode with Christopher Reeve about a book he's about to publish called Lenin Lives with a question mark. And so I wanted to, just for introductory purposes, ask you, how do you regard Lenin's legacy 100 years since the old man died?
1: It might sound paradoxical, but I learned a lot more about Lenin after moving to the States as opposed to when I was growing up in Russia. I remember when I was a kid. So... I grew up in Tomsk, right? And we have the central square. And the central square has the statue of Lenin, of course, a cathedral, and a chapel. And I remember growing up that people were, maybe somebody in my family, maybe my dad, were always like wondering or like kind of maybe even complaining about the fact that like Lenin... (laughs) and the church coexist in the same space. (laughs) And how strange that is and that kind of, you know, defines the chaos, the kind of spiritual and ideological chaos of the nineties. And in my head it was always just like this weird dude that was for some reason important, but no one thinks that what he did was right anymore. But he's still here. The statue is still here. So I guess Lenin lives. And it was only in the States when I was an adult that I met a lot of people who would identify as progressive, as leftist. And I would suddenly learn that, oh, Lenin was actually a really important and revolutionary and cool figure. So... I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of my journey with Lenin actually learning more about his role in Russian history after I moved out of Russia.
0: Yeah, that is quite ironic, but I guess it's a testament to the times that you were growing Mm -hmm. up in, too, right? Where he's kind of more profane. And now I don't think he factors in much of the consciousness of Russian politics today, except for Putin's periodic statements, anti-Lenin statements.
1: Mm -hmm. What do you think about Lenin today?
0: I have mixed feelings because, on the one hand, and I've been thinking about this, particularly in the run-up to this interview, and that is his influence on the 20th century can't be denied. He shaped, in many respects, the 20th century more than any other person, right? He certainly belongs in maybe, like, the top five most important people who shaped the world in the last 100 years. But at the same time, I don't have a lot to say about at least my views of his politics. I think in terms of historical record, particularly during the Russian Revolution, he comes across as a very, very shrewd, but also adept politician. But at the same time, I don't really understand his currency so much amongst leftists today, particularly in the West. And a lot of it I see particularly amongst Trotskyists, who seem to be the only ones who who carry the banner of Lenin very much anymore. I kind of see the relationship with Lenin is a lot of cosplay. So I have this story I tell people all the time. Many years ago, I was at an anarchist convention in San Francisco, actually. And outside the convention, there is this guy from the Spartacist League. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's a small little Trotskyist political sect with emphasis on the sect, almost a religious organization in some respects. And he was outside the anarchist convention selling the Workers' Vanguard newspaper, which is the Spartacist main newspaper. I don't even know if they're still around, quite honestly. So I was curious. I started talking to him, and I actually subscribed to the newspaper out of curiosity. And every time the newspaper came, you open it up, and it has a little picture of Lenin and a little picture of Trotsky with some sort of inspirational passage of either of them that kind of reflects on our times. And I found this incredibly silly (laughs) because like, A, what the hell does Lenin, let alone Trotsky, have to do with the United States? Like politics in America. It just seems like really forced. And this isn't to say that I think Lenin is irrelevant and that maybe there aren't things to learn from him and his political experience. But in terms of this kind of identifying oneself as a Leninist, it just doesn't really make sense to me anymore. At least not in America. Maybe in other parts of the world, it makes more sense that places where they actually have a Leninist political tradition. But in the United States, there's just, I mean, there was one, but it's never been mm. really strong.
1: Yeah, I always found it a little ironic that people who never went through communism or socialism identify so strongly and also, okay, I don't want to be harsh, but it almost something like a status thing or like a fad. Oh, I'm like this quirky, weird dude who is a a Leninist.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think there's a lot of performativeness with leftist politics already. And so the Lenin thing, it's people who, I remember I was at some This is probably getting too far and people will denounce me. But I remember going to a protest here in Pittsburgh and there was the one guy who looks like he's Lenin (laughs) with the hat and the kind of workers get up. And it just seems kind of funny to me (laughs) in a way. Maybe I've outgrown Lenin in this respect. I don't see the allure anymore of even cosplaying being a Leninist.
1: And with that, here's Christopher Reed. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So why don't we introduce him and move on to the interview then, since I'm sure people don't want to sit here and listen to us babble on about the relevancy of Lenin. (laughs) So why don't you go ahead and introduce Chris?
1: Christopher Reed has been studying Russia in the Soviet Union for over 50 years. He has written many books and articles, especially on the social, cultural and political history of the period from 1900 to 1932. His most recent books are The Russian Intelligentsia, From the Monastery to the Mir Space Station, and Lenin Lives, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Christopher Reed.
0: So you've written a lot about Lenin over the years, and you have this new book coming out called Lenin Lives with a question mark. And that immediately caught my attention and i'd like to know why the title has a question mark
2: when i started out i think that was kind of my research question what exactly do we have today that we that's useful from lenin because i mean i go back a ways of course and when i was an undergraduate 50 years ago half a century half the time since lenin's death the situation was very different i mean everybody was running around on the left anyway being leninist and looking for Lenin's ideas and reading what is to be done and talking about all kinds of stuff. And Althusser was talking about him and Edward Thompson had a fight with him. And, you know, it was, it was very much in the center of things. Now, today, who talks about Lenin? Trotskyists, yes. A few of the old believers, in the West, that is. But, of course, you've got the anomaly that you've still got the largest country in the world, is still looking to Lenin, at least theoretically, for some kind of inspiration. And the other legacy uh, communist states, Vietnam, Cuba, etc., the communist government recently in Portugal, in in Spain, not what it was even 20, 30 years ago, but still there's something there. Of course, I'm kind of intrigued by the example of Kerala in South India as well, where They've had Leninist-inspired communists in and out of coalitions running one of the most successful local governments in India for decades now. So obviously you can't shut the book on Lenin, but on the other hand, nobody in the West very much wants to have anything to do with him, certainly not anybody in Russia, apart from the Communist Party.
1: I'm curious to know what attracted you to writing and researching about Lenin in the first place, because you wrote a lot about the revolutionary movement, the revolution, and the Soviet system. So where did it all begin? Well,
2: that's a very difficult question to answer because, I mean, I see myself basically as an unreconstructed structuralist, not as a person who looks at individuals and individual agency, but a publisher's. Routledge um, many years ago said what about a biography of lenin and i just had this feeling that i'd spent so much time with lenin i'd worked around lenin i'd read so much lenin i felt that i knew lenin almost as a person i thought well good idea yes maybe once in a lifetime i could break my principles and write a biography so i did and um I just had a feeling that I perhaps saw Lenin in a particular way that was a little bit different from other people's, and it was therefore worth adding yet another volume to the vast pile of volumes of Lenin, which is much thinner these days, of course, than it was even in two thousand two thousand five
0: 2005 when I was writing that one. So what is your view of Lenin that's different than what you found? Oh, uh, that
1: was my question. <laughs>
0: Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah,
2: I was opening myself up to precisely that question as I formulated it when I said that. But for me, I mean, I came at it from the point of view of somebody who started out looking at Russian political thought, cultural history. My thesis and the first book were about the Viechi group who were anti-revolutionaries well, anti-materialist revolutionaries. And I came in from the cultural point of view, and I was perhaps one of the few people who had read uh, Lenin's book on the imperialism, on the uh, philosophy, which is really quite a tough read for anybody who claims to be Leninist. But coming from the cultural point of view, I, I thought people had kind of overlooked the cultural side of Lenin in the sense that the most important aspect of Lenin and of the whole Bolshevik movement is its mobilizing nature. It was really there, expecting to have, it had a curious mixture of, of extremely deep political analysis to the point of cynicism, with an overlayer of extreme naive utopianism about creating a new world and a new, a new human nature. So I tended to come at it from the point of view of the cultural side. And say, well, I mean, what we have to remember at the base of it all, that Le- uh, Lenin and uh, those close to him, really thought that they were transforming human nature, not just simply changing Russian institutions. And that was both the strength and the weakness of Bolshevism. And I think its success and failure both lay within that very same thing. I think it's partly the tragedy of the revolution as well, because the Leninists, the Bolsheviks, had such a strong sense. mission to construct this new world that they weren't actually very good at listening to the realities around them. And in my view, in a sense, they actually undermined the people's revolution of 1917. They claimed to lead it, but in fact, they didn't pay any attention to it. They thought they were going to teach this revolution, not again, this revolution to teach them.
0: This reminds me of, I always assign this to my students when I teach the Russian revolution. I think it was Viktor Chernov once described Lenin as a cue ball that's going somewhere. He doesn't know where he's going, but he's going there resolutely. (laughs) (laughs) This is his, and I I always was fascinated by this description of Lenin as a personality. And I'm curious, in your view, what what kind of person was he?
2: Well, I think in many ways he was a very conventional person, middle-class child, middle-class upbringing. But... Deep down inside, he had this kind of steel core, and it's very tempting to speculate, and everybody does, and I didn't resist, that this arises from the execution of his brother at a very, very formative age. I mean, Leonard was 16, 17 when his brother was in jail and, and executed. And I mean, there was lots of strange theories floating around when I was... At the university in my early years, and Lenin was the compulsive revolutionary. Revolutionaries are only revolutionaries because they were misfits. I've included something in my other new book that's coming out very shortly on the intelligentsia from Edward Shills and others who said, Intellectuals are only intellectuals because they can't fit into proper society. All this kind of nonsense was floating around and was quite prominent. But um, the the extraordinary thing in many ways about Lenin is almost the entire family joined in with his revolutionary project. Even his mother sent him money, and his father supported him, although his father died fairly early. And his brothers, his in-laws, his sisters, Krupskaya, all these people all joined in. It was like a family operation. But he had certain characteristics, which I think are rather unusual. He's often seen as being ruthless in his personal relationships. When politics came into it, he certainly was. I mean, he could break with his best friend, i.e. Martov, and break all social relations with him until the rest of his life, when supposedly in his last years, he said, well, I wonder what happened to Martov, how Martov's getting on. But at the same time, he also shocked his party by being able to turn around to when he brought Trotsky back into the party. Who else would have welcomed Trotsky back into the party after all the opposition and the very, very harsh things he'd said about Lenin, about Lenin's dictatorship and all this kind of thing? But Lenin brought him back in. And of course, Trotsky was not entirely welcomed by the rest of the Bolshevik leadership. But he could do that. He's so political. I mean, he was um, so focused on politics. I would slightly disagree with Jonoff's view that I I think Lenin did know where he was going in fairly general terms, but the thought that he'd actually get there must have been quite stunning. That's the thing, really.
0: Do you think that at the core of his personality is this politics? Is politics the central core of his identity, his kind of self-presentation, the basis of relationships?
2: Yes, I think it is almost exclusively. You can't imagine him setting his principles on one side and going down the pub and having a chat with a a cadet or a conservative. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. Everybody he knew, everybody he worked with, his whole circle, were people who were not necessarily totally in agreement with him. That wasn't a necessary thing, but they had to be interested in the same things. And also, I think I, I did make a point in the book, both this one and the previous biography, the full biography, that Lenin was not a person who got involved in labor movements outside Russia to any high degree. He was always focused on the Russian Revolution. Unlike Trotsky, who would take part in workers' protest movements in New York or in London or uh, later in his career, obviously, in France and so on. Wherever he happened to be, Trotsky threw himself into the local movement. Lenin was only interested in Russia. Everything was about Russia. And even when he was in Germany or Switzerland, he would give talks to people, but he wasn't an activist in those movements.
0: I actually never considered that fact. Do you have an answer why he was only focused on the Russian empire?
2: I think that's just the way he was constructed. I mean, this is true of a lot of Russians, to be quite honest. They're mainly interested in the Russian question and the Russian enigma and the Russian issue. But as I say, Sixpenny amateur psychology suggests that it is tied up with his brother's fate and the, the the terrible trauma that that was. His brother was executed when he was 17 and a couple of weeks later, Leonard had to go and do his school-leaving exam. So. Imagine the excuses people put these days for getting out of exam. <laughs> uh, my brother's just been executed. Oh, get on with it, Lenin. Pull yourself together, you know. That's
0: get right. It. After, you know, and uh, you got to do these exams. I'll have to remember that next time I get an excuse <laughs> from <Lenny>. a student. <laughs> I think so. Yeah,
2: well, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Lenin's brother's executed. He did his exams. What do you do? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Chris, you mentioned that you felt like you knew Lenin really well before you started working on his biography, through that work, was there anything about Lenin that surprised you? Something that you didn't know before, didn't expect?
2: Well, I can't think of anything really major. I think the degree of his politicization, what I like to put in the first biography is subtitled Revolutionary Life, so I was really interested in his politics. But I did come to see him more as a a more rounded human being, a person who enjoyed going on his bike rides, walking in the woods, taking his holidays on the French coast. And the one thing which I think came across was that I thought, what a pity that Krupskaya didn't have more influence on him because I think on so many things, Krupskaya had a very, very much more humane, and probably more effective ideas than, than, than Lenin himself. But, of course, the nature of the Russian patriarchy, which, of course, Lenin railed against, but his whole life is built on it. Uh, he's a very patriarchal figure within relationships that he had around him. He, he had good relationships with a lot of the women around him, and, but he was very much in that sort of superior status, superior position. But the, I think it was this... The roundedness of his humanity and his ability to direct his mind to the cause and to the particular issue that was going on, and everything else would fall by the wayside, his personal relationship, his friendships, his relationships with with the people around him. But as I say, I'm quite sad that Krupskaya didn't have more influence uh, because I think from that first anecdote when they first met at the workers' reading circle where she was very busy teaching workers to read and helping them to improve their lives. As Lenin comes in and says, oh, well, if you think you're going to bring down Tsarism by teaching uh, workers to read, then you've got another thing coming. He was kind of rather dismissive of the whole thing, but I think he should have paid more attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some core ideas, main components of Lenin's thoughts. and And I'd like to begin with the question of violence, because violence is one of the things he's remembered for as you flesh out, is that he actually had a quite ambiguous relationship with the notion of violence as such.
2: Yeah, I don't think I would use the term ambiguous. He had a very consistent view of violence. He hated it. He was just a normal human being. He hated it. And he, he was constantly referring to the terrible slaughter that was going on all around him while he was stuck in Switzerland during the first world War and how capitalism was pointlessly destroying millions and millions of people. But at the same time, he kind of separates himself out from some of the more liberal, sentimental radicals, revolutionaries, by kind of saying that, yeah, unfortunately, violence is going to be part of our revolution, because the ruling class isn't going to just say, okay, it's all over, i am gonna pack my suitcases, goodbye, you can have it all. The idea of a, and certainly in Russian conditions, as, as, which of course, as we've said, is really what he was concerned with, the idea of a peaceful transition was just uh, pie in the sky. Marx, of course, had said similar things, but he'd also allowed the possibility of a possible parliamentary road to socialism. The German Social Democrats, Lenin's time, Kautsky, and so on were believed in the possibility of a, a parliamentary road to socialism, but Lenin wasn't, so he felt violence was going to be necessary. And There's the, the famous anecdote from Gorky when he comes across Lenin. Lenin's listening to Beethoven's Piano Sonata and says, oh, yes, beautiful music, it's really lovely, but unfortunately it makes you want to pat people on the heads when basically you've got to chop them off. And if Lenin's more human side had come to the fore a little bit more, I think it would have been the. Better. But on the other hand, he's not a person. I mean, the presentation of him as a a kind of crazy madman who didn't care how many people died in the juggernaut of his politics is completely wrong too. There's a famous book by Richard Pipes, which was, I don't know why, it should have been should have been sued for the title. It was the unknown Lenin, but nothing in it was unknown at all. Uh, all the documents he was referring to were, were quite well known, but he particularly focused on one that said, we've got to hang 200 people just for an example. And as far as I know, and I've looked and I've asked a lot of people, that order was never, ever carried out. Uh, it was just a piece of rhetoric. And uh, people around him said, oh, it's just Lenin sounding off again. We're not going to go and just round up 200 people and execute them. And although it's a thing you might say in the heat of the moment, it's not Lenin's everyday practice or Lenin's everyday uh activity. I mean he obviously regretted the deaths that were being caused, but you have again this combination of that kind of realism with the extraordinary naivety. And I think I think it was the naivety of Lenin in a way which came home to me, to go back to your earlier question, which was perhaps a little bit more striking to me when I look more closely, the naivety that, although you would end up with this, you would start off with this violence, you can somehow use it to construct some kind of utopian future that would come out, whereas others said, I mean, I, I, I uh, use one or two pieces of literature from the of there's a, an extraordinary, very, very short two-page story by Yevgeny Zamyatin called The Church of God, which was written in 1921, where he talks about Ivan builds a church to be the showpiece of all the world, and Ivan being Russia, the church being the revolution. But unfortunately, it's been built through robbing merchants, and there's a lot of corpses in the basement, and when everybody comes to the opening, it just stinks. And unfortunately, that's partly the way the Russian Revolution went, its means began to undermine its goals, and
0: Lenin never really saw that. How much do you think that this relationship with violence is also the fact that the Russian revolutionary movement, violence is a really central tactic that is used? If you consider the role of terrorism in the revolutionary movement, violence is integral to the revolutionary culture, it seems to me. Do you see his contending with violence, or even seeing violence as unfortunate but necessary, connected to the movement he came out of?
2: And certainly, yes. He was a great admirer of the early populists. And this has been a matter of controversy recently as well. And he also was a great admirer of Narodna Volya, the terrorist wing. And I also understand Lenin as being essentially a populist himself in seeing the kind of idea of service of the people and conducting a people's revolution at, at that level, and, but he did take a lot of the violent tradition. I don't think it's hard to explain, really, because some I mean, of the violent tradition is there, because there's no other outlet for opposition. If people say who was the number one revolutionary in Russia before 1917, I unequivocally say Nicholas II. The autocracy created its own nemesis, and particularly after 1881, when it started to get more repressive It was impossible to find legal outlets. The idea that there was a change of heart in 1905, well, okay, the German was forced out of Nicholas, but they withdrew as many of its powers and its possibilities and its rights and everything around it as quickly as they could. And by 1912, they were shooting workers in Siberia again, just in the good old-fashioned way. So violence was imposed on the revolutionary movement. By the authorities, I think, and by the violence of the autocracy. And there was no safety valves. And and I think that's proven to be the case in a lot of places that the places where revolutions have been most violent have been the ones where democracy was most underdeveloped.
1: Well, continuing this conversation about violence, I wonder, given that We know a lot about what happened in Russia during the revolution and after, and like the role of Lenin in all of that. How come Lenin and his ideas were still so popular outside of Russia throughout the 20th century? And what made them so attractive beyond Russia?
2: When people say Lenin, they say, oh, the party, his concept of the party, you've got to build a uh, party like Lenin's party. But, of course, Lenin's party was no different from anybody else's party, really. Lenin came to power without really implementing any of his own Leninist principles. He didn't come to power through a Leninist path, if you like. And, um, I mean, Lenin's projection into power is something which we kind of take for granted. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. 25,000 followers in February, governing the country in October, in hiding in a field in Finland in July, in the Toro Palace in October, and in the Kremlin in, in, in 1918. It, it just happens in no time at all. I think that we misunderstand a, a lot of that particular aspect. What was the particular point you were wanting me to look at, Rosanna?
1: I was just wondering what made his ideas so attractive beyond Russia. Oh, and sorry, that, yes, mm-hmm. of course.
2: The two things which I identify in Let It Lives are that, unexpectedly, I think, to him, the aspect of his thought which became most influential was anti-imperialism. Largely because there wasn't a very strong literature uh, of anti-imperialism, because Most of the world was controlled by imperialists, and in the intellectual world was controlled by imperialists and so on. I mean, you had liberal critiques of imperialists. You had Hobson, who was quite influential on Lenin and all that kind of thing. But Moscow became the bedrock of all anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movements by hook or by Crook a situation which, of course, it's curiously trying to recreate today, which is fascinating. And it was a track that people turned to it. I mean, the Chinese May Fourth movement was not particularly Marxist-Leninist, but Mao and the Chinese communists turned towards Leninism because this was the anti-colonial. Ho Chi Minh in Paris tells us that he became a communist because the communists were the... The most overtly anti-colonial and and non—I won't say they were non-racist, but least racist part of the of the French Left when he was in France and so on and so forth, and so it goes on. That was the main attractive point of communism and Leninism across the developing globe, the colonial world, and in the definitely, I think, in the Western world, it was anti-fascism, because again, Moscow was the main consistent, permanent. Critic of fascism when capitalists and liberal states and conservative states were at times played footsie with fascists of various kinds and would saying, "Oh yeah, well Mussolini is a good thing because he sorted Russia around the trains run on time, blah blah blah." And Hitler doesn't really mean all that stuff he says about the Jews. He's just really anti-communist, and that's good. So they got a lot of the kudos and a lot of the way which some rather naive intellectuals got to be great admirers of Stalin, obviously, in the 30s, including people like Sartre and others who saw through it, a bit like Gide and Orwell in in some ways. They were initially attracted to it by anti-fascism. And it's interesting, I mean, Orwell's disillusionment came about in Spain where he saw that the communists were happy to suppress independent revolutionary forces, anarchists, syndicalists, Trotskyists, and all the rest of it, in the name of their own great uh, dogma, which, of course, is what Lenin himself had really done. It wasn't just a Stalinist type characteristic. But they were anti Now, things begin to fall apart, obviously. Here, see, in 1956, with Khrushchev's speech, Leninism, admiration for communism in the rest of the world, in the non-communist world, is really declining fast, and it is becoming associated primarily with Trotskyism of some sort. You've got a, a number of still quite powerful communist parties in France, Italy, and after the Spanish Revolution, the overthrow of Franco, and then in Portugal after the overthrow of the Salazar regime, uh, you begin to get quite strong communist movements, but they're very, very different. They're, they're less and less Leninist. Santiago Carrillo, the, uh, the leader of the Spanish Euro Communists said when we grew up october was our christmas but no we don't believe in father christmas anymore Uh, and they were looking for a a a more democratic way a way to use the heritage but to rework it and essentially away from leninist methods of a highly centralized democratic centralist authoritarian party
0: Mm -hmm. i'm going to ask you to put on your lenin suit (laughs) <laughs> yeah. play lenin for us yeah. as best you can yeah. channel channel his ghost yeah. and two questions the first being if lenin was alive today right he was writing analyzing the world how would he look at the war in ukraine russia's invasion of ukraine how do you think he would understand it
2: well i think he'd emphasize that it was a clash of two toxic nationalisms. there's no Worker interests in, in, in this war on either side. From Lenin's point of view, he wouldn't side with the way the Ukrainians have tried to suppress Russianness in Ukraine and all that kind of stuff, or any more than he would side with the ambitions of the Russian government. And I think he would tend to, let well, me certainly say, play on both your houses as far well as that was concerned. I think like the rest of us, he might be struggling to find anybody he could support anywhere in the globe at the moment. There don't seem to be any any charismatic movements or anybody who's really getting a handle on what's really important. I'm not sure Lenin would be the right person to resurrect to lead us. But I don't think he would have anything favorable to say about either
0: side. The other question is, and you've already kind of hinted at it, and that is his understanding of global capitalism today and even imperialism. Which, you know, is back. Imperialism is since I think the Ukraine war, imperialism has risen back into kind of more public discourse. At the same time, class, global capitalism, and these other things that are core to a Marxist or even a Marxist-Leninist analysis have fallen to the wayside.
2: Yes, absolutely. In a sense, you could say capitalism has had a brilliant success in that it's persuaded people the problems are with themselves and in themselves. And if people spend all their times on self-analysis and identity politics and identity crises, which are very important, I'm not denying them, obviously, but they're no substitutes for politics, for class. As I say, I'm an unreconstructed structuralist. And you can't say that when you've had a few drinks. But it is the case that nationalism was seen as a diversion. I shouldn't say this with an audience and with a group of people, but if I was truly honest, I'd say certain aspects of feminism have detracted from the struggle in the sense that it diverts the attention away from a a struggle between classes to a struggle between genders. And those feminists who don't realize, many of them do, that you have to solve the class problem to solve the gender problem, I think is very important. But I think that similarly, I mean, nationalism, identity politics, and so on, and as you say, imperialism, are triumphant. And I don't know. To me, one of the root causes of the crisis of the escalation of the war in Ukraine in 2021 was that uh, there's a kind of neo-imperialist project which Biden is presiding over and which is being promoted by a small coterie of people around him and the restoration of American hegemony in a, in a completely anachronistic thoroughly dangerous fashion. So imperialism yeah. has begun to emerge it's as I said it's ironic that Russia Chovina and the brigs are now establishing themselves as the voice of anti-colonialism and I don't think they see any and even Russia doesn't see any irony in that whatsoever so I think well, that's one thing where it can be inspirational because the situation if you're a Person who wants to see the world change for the better, in the interests of the great mass of the world, this is a, a depressing situation. But Lenin faced that. That's what the world was like before nineteen fourteen, and they had the war to go through as well. God help us if we have to go through anything like that. But Lenin still believed. He still hoped. He still built. He still created. He had his. He was a tiny minority. Everybody he would have been criticised for his craziness to think that he could stand up against these great war machines and these great states and these great powerful capitalist enterprises and all the rest of it. But as as we said earlier, there he was projected into power within six months and created a revolution which, as I say, I think quoting somebody in the last sentence of my book at least, Lenin gave the capitalists the biggest fright they've had in the 20th century.
0: Chris, to leave us with what can Lenin teach us today, anything else you would add that... Maybe there's an aspect of Lenin's political philosophy that we would do well to remember. Well, I think
2: his his ability to analyze political conjunctures is second to none. He's absolutely brilliant at an analysis of class relations and um, different political positions of his time. That doesn't translate simply into something which we can do today other than to try to follow his example. And I, I think, think remember the importance of class, remember the importance of imperialism, and all that kind of thing. But I also said uh, that Lenin's a little bit like the villain in the slasher movies. He always seems to be finished off, but he always jumps up again and reappears and, and reemerges. And there are these places where he is still revered, and I think he's got something to add. I, I think if he hadn't become leader of the Russian Revolution, would anybody be talking about Lenin? I mean, Lenin would be in the same category as Rosa of Luxembourg. Trotsky would be there, Kautsky would be there. Significant figures in the history of their movement to their day, but somebody whose time had passed. You might say, we can learn from Lenin that the importance of a movement is not to be dogmatic, it's to be flexible, to use positions and to change them and to uh, be able to adapt to conditions and to respond to changing circumstances. But you don't need Lenin to tell you that. You can get it from many other places as well.
1: That was Christopher Reed. Christopher Reid has been studying Russia and the Soviet Union for over 50 years. He has written many books and articles, especially in the social, cultural, and political history of the period from 1900 to 1932. His most recent books are The Russian Intelligentsia, From the Monastery to the Mir Space Station, and Lenin Lives, published by Oxford University Press. And
0: I'm your host, Sean Guillory.
1: And I'm your fellow co-host, Rosanna Novikova.
0: We won't burden you with any more talk of Lennon. You've probably heard enough. So we just want to say that uh, this episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper from PodCuts Editing. As always, in every episode, I've been saying this when Daniel's helped us out. If you have any audio that needs to be dealt with, edited, mixed properly, check out Daniel's services at PodCuts Editing. You know, we work with him because he makes the show sound better. And he's also reasonably priced. If you have something for Daniel please go to podcutsediting.com and he will give you your first edit for free. And as you know, this is the Eurasian Knot and it is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners, just like you, if you want to become a patron and help us out and show us how much you appreciate the show and what we're doing, go to patreon.com slash yourenot or to yourenot.org and find that Patreon button and become a monthly patron. We always appreciate and thank you for your support. And until next time, bye.
1: bye.
2: Bye. А потом её четыре зимствовни убежали.